the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Well, folks, welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour uh, right here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Now, we get on the air because of the engineering skills of Pete Paquette. He's good at it. Gets us on the air. Andrew Herdliska uh, produces it. That means he lines up the guests for us every week. And the first guest lined up here is Ken Harrison. He's in Colorado, CEO of Waterstone, chairman of Promise Keepers, former Los Angeles police officer. But we're going to talk about his new book. It's called A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World. Live a life without waste, regret, or anything unfinished. Welcome to Orlando, Ken. Again, how are you? Uh, I'm good, Pat. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, Why did this book need to be written? You know, uh, people are leaving the church, and I don't blame them, because their identity uh, that they're getting through the cheap grace teaching of the church is really starting to affect people negatively. And what I mean by that is that you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, "Forgiveness, salvation without repentance, is cheap grace." And so, what's happening is the identity we're giving our people is that you're a bad person, but Jesus loves you anyway. Now, go try not to be bad, but if you do, well, He still loves you, and that's 99% true. But what we've lost is that He saved us for a purpose. Ephesians 2:10. He has a, a good works for all of us to accomplish in our life, and we'll judge us based on those good works. And then we see that we identify ourselves. Instead of that we're sinners, but that we're sons and daughters of the Most High God. And that has a huge impact on how we perceive ourselves and how we live our lives. Ken, your book breaks down into three parts. Part one is called Called to a Daring Faith. And your first chapter in part one, boy, this is some title. What will we tell Jesus we did with our lives? Tell us more. Well, you know, when I was in the Los Angeles Police Department, I was in a lot of shootings, high-speed pursuits, you know, a lot of life-and-death situations, but they were always based on adrenaline and commendations and people cheering you on. And then I got hit by a jet ski when I was 30 years old and rushed to the emergency room, laying on a gurney, and the doctor walks in and said, look, you you ruptured your liver. If it's less than 30% or 40%, we're going to life flight you out, cut it out, it'll grow back. If it's more than 40%, you have five days or five hours to live. Have a nice day. And he walked out of the room. And so for about an hour before I got my test back, I lied there thinking, I might see Jesus in five hours. Mm. And when I do, and he says, what did you do with what I gave you? I'm going to have to say, not much. I've been a nice guy, policeman. I never cheated on my wife. Um, 
He's going to say, who was clothed because you were here? Who was fed? Who is going to heaven because you witnessed to him? And I, my answer would be no one. Mm. And I thought that changed my life. And a big part of writing this book was, I think a lot of Christians, if they were facing that situation, would be just like 30-year-old Ken Harrison laying there going, oh, man, I don't have much to say. In that moment, I thought, I will never be in a situation again. When the plane's going down, when the ship is sinking, I'm going to say, Lord, I'm going to see you soon, and I can't wait to get my crown. And I want to encourage other people to do that, too. And so in this book, I tell them how and what they can get. Ken, then you move to a second topic here in part one, called to more than salvation. Uh, what do you mean by that? So what we talked about at the very top of this uh, you know, conversation is that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is the verses that so many people know. For by grace you're saved through faith, and this not of yourself. It's a gift of God that no one should boast. So even the faith we believe in God with is a gift from Him. We are tru- truly and totally saved by grace through no effort of our own. However, Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What people need to know is that though they were saved by grace, they were saved for a purpose, which was good works. And those good works were laid down at the beginning of time for you, Pat, and for me, Ken Harrison, to accomplish. And we will be judged and rewarded based on how well we carried out the will that God had for our lives. Philippians 2, 12, and 13 says, Continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who wills in you to work and to act according to His good purpose. So why are we working out our salvation? Not to, to perfect the cross. That was all done. It's to accomplish the works which God has laid down for us to accomplish. Let's move to uh, the third topic here in this part, uh, called to be courageous. Tell us more. You know, one of the things that we've taught in the American church um, inadvertently is that the best Christian is the most prudent Christian. In other words, whoever has the least amount of a life is the best Christian. You know, don't smoke, don't chew, don't date girls to do. Um, That is not what we see in the Bible. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, God lays down the hall of faith. That is, he says, look at these people, and anybody can go back and read this. Look at these people and be like them. And then you read those people, and they're all people from the Old Testament. And it's the most screwed up list of people you've ever seen. I mean, it's Rahab the prostitute. It's Japheth who comes home from a battle and kills his daughter because he thinks he's pleasing God. I mean, you're like, really, God? Like these people? What we see about those people is two things they have in common. They're extremely passionate people who have repented of their sins, number one. And number two, none of them ever back down from a fight. God is looking for courageous and daring people because we're living in a hurting world with people who are desperately in need of Christ and His grace. And he's saying, who's going to be bold? Who's going to go out and spread my message? Let's go to call to be God's friend, you tell us, Ken. This is such a great passage. Jesus tells the disciples one day as they're there, you see this motley crew of screwed-up guys. And finally he says to them, I no longer call you slaves. Today I call you friends, for a slave doesn't know what his master is doing, but I'm telling you what I'm doing. What do we see there? Their persistence and obedience to Christ, he elevates them and says, you're no longer a slave of of God, you're a friend of God. And I go into an illustration in James Robinson's life about what that looks like. Let's talk, talk about called to hate sin. 
Topic five. You know, sin is that thing we're going to about to get into the whole Sermon on the Mount in the next couple of questions um, from the book. Sin is that thing that God hates us or calls us to hate because each one of us, though we were made perfect in His image, we have screwed up desires because of our sinful nature. And those sinful natures drive us from God. And so we see that near the beginning of holiness, we're going to get into this in a little bit, is blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. Mourn what? They mourn the state of the world. They mourn their own inability to save people. And it breaks their heart. When you get to a level of holiness, when you begin to see people and things through God's eyes, it literally breaks your heart. And what does Jesus promise? You will be comforted. When will you be comforted? When you get to heaven, you'll enter into his rest. Ken Harrison is our guest. Uh, He's uh, with us from Colorado, where he is residing. His book is called A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World. Uh, Part two, we've arrived, Ken. Living out a daring faith, and you lead off with a chapter called Losing Ourselves in Him. Tell us more. Well, so when we ask ourselves if Jesus gave the entire salvation message in John 3.16, which he did, if you love God, you'll be saved, you'll have eternal life, then what are all the rest of his words about? So in this part of the book, we start to go into what is this hot whole thing, Matthew 5-7, the Sermon on the Mount, about? If it's not about salvation, then what's he talking about? And so he is telling his disciples, he separates away from the crowd. Now he's only talking to the Twelve, and he's telling them, Here's how you become disciples. Here's how you have all the joy and the power and the unity that I've promised you, if you do these things. And he's only talking to his disciples then. He's only talking to his disciples today. Salvation is the easiest thing in the world, but discipleship will cost you everything. Let's move to, uh, well, this is now topic seven, Ken. Uh, you simply call- pretty good. becoming blessed. What does that mean? So this is where Jesus starts to talk about the Beatitudes, what what we can um, do and what we need to do to become totally blessed. So he starts off with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why that? Because when you're poor in spirit, that's when you begin to realize you've got nothing to offer Christ except for the sin that nailed him to the cross. And once you understand that, now you can be on the road to holiness. He takes us all the way through to the end. Blessed are those who poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, we just mentioned. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. He gets us all the way to the end. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name. When people say all kinds of evil things about you, rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. So the promise, if you become holy, I've got two promises for you. First, you're not going to have any friends. And second, it's going to be awesome when you get to heaven. How about... uh... Staying salty. What's that mean? Boy, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he finishes the Beatitudes, he says that we're to be salt and light. And what does salt do in the old days? It, it killed bacteria. It killed evil. What does light do? Light exposes evil. God says, you, my disciples, will be salt and light. You will expose and kill evil, not, not people, but kill evil itself. And he says, what good is salt if it loses its saltiness? It's not good for anything but to be thrown out and be trampled. And so this is where we're encouraged to stay the course, because the one who perseveres to the end is the one who will get the rewards. So many people 
they live godly lives for a few years, but this or that throws them off or, or sorrow or whatever it might be, and they don't finish well. And here Jesus implores us, stay salty, persevere all the way to the end. Ken, Ken let's uh, pause. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's pause here for a minute before we go to part three. <clears throat> Tell me about Waterstone, a foundation that gives weekly to Christian ministries. Well, when I left the Los Angeles Police Department, I went into business, and I ran a, a, a huge international company, and then I retired um, and then started running this foundation. And the foundation, what it does is it helps really successful people take complicated assets and turn that into giving. And so we now we give away $2.5 million per week to everything from saving sex slave girls in Africa to getting clean water to ghettos here in America to fighting uh, against abortion. The Waterstone is an unbelievable, um, really cool thing. It's a, it's a service that we offer to ministry to help people to give as wisely as they can to support God's causes. And then I want you to tell me more about uh, Promise Keepers that you're part of. Yeah, you know, Promise Keepers, people might remember back in the uh, 90s, we had 7 million men uh, go to Promise Keepers, and that culminated in 1.4 million men going to the Washington Mall in D.C. Most people call it the Million Man March. It was really called Stand in the Gap. We have a documentary that we're releasing on that on October 4th, the 25th anniversary of that. The biggest gathering in the history of D.C., and people can go on to promisekeepers.org and register to see that documentary the moment it comes out on October 4th. In Promise Keepers, though, in our relaunch, we had 30,000 men at AT&T Stadium, Dallas Cowboy Stadium last summer in the middle of COVID. Washington Post wrote us up. They couldn't believe it that we had that many people there. But now we have these virtual events that we're releasing about two, three times a year. We just had one on sexual integrity. We had 88,000 people watch that across the world um, live. It's now up to about 200,000. And there's a 30-day challenge. You can download the Promise Keepers app and not only see the hour-long sexual integrity event, which goes into pornography and the damage, but then get real healing intensive teaching through the app for a 30-day challenge. And we've had over 5,000 men go through that. And I'm getting letters every day from guys going, man, I was ugly crying. I- I've been addicted to pornography for 50 years, and now I'm finally healed. Thank you so much, Promise Keepers. So it's back. It's different. But, boy, Promise Keepers is really being used to free women from husbands who are in chains, hit from sons who are screwed up. And it's freeing men up from a lifetime of the world telling them that they can compromise when all it does is lead to destruction. Ken, <clears throat> what prompted you to become a police officer? My dad was a cop in uh, South Central Los Angeles, and he was shot in the Watts Riots in 1965. And... Uh, and my uncle was a very, one of the most famous Los Angeles policemen ever. He was on the infamous Hat Squad and uh, com- commander of the SIS division, which anybody who knows the LAPD, those those are extreme elite divisions. And so I followed in their footsteps. And in 1989, when I realized I wasn't good enough to play in the NBA because guys like you wouldn't let me on, you know, <laughs> let him imagine. Then, uh, <laughs> and then I, I gave up my, my pro basketball dreams and joined the LAPD. Uh, my guest is Ken Harrison. We have another segment with Ken. Uh, we're talking about his book, A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World. Uh, live, in a, live a life with outraged, without regret, or anything unfinished. Uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. 
And we gather like this every weekend right here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We will uh, be right back with Ken Harris. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. It's always good to uh, catch up with Ken Harrison when he's produced another book. Uh, This one, A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World. And Ken, uh, we've arrived at uh, part three, uh, Rewards for a Daring Faith. And your first chapter is called Your Name in the Book of Life. Tell us more. So we've, we've talked now in the book about what? Why should I have a daring faith? What's the point of going through it? How do we get challenged for it? And then the second part, we say, how? This is Jesus explaining, here's how you become one of those great saints you read about. Here's how you become one of those people like Billy Graham or Dwight Moody or Mother Teresa. And here's how you have all the joy. There's so many people live a joyless Christian life. And Jesus says, well, here's the words of how. Now we get in the last section of what you'll get. And so we're promised all these amazing things and rewards from Christ. In this chapter, we go specifically the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian at the judgment seat. So the the non-Christians will go to the great white throne. You don't want to be there. At the great white throne, if your name is not written in the book of life, there will be a bunch of other books that you'll be These are the books of your life. You get a hint of this in Malachi chapter 3 and 4 when God says that he is keeping books on people that he'll remember forever what they've done and what they've said. Then the Christians will go to the Bema seat, and the Bema seat is the victor's throne that uh, uh, somebody in the Isthmian Games and later on the, the Olympic Games would go before and get great rewards when they won a race. And we're told over and over again, run the race to win. This is how we're supposed to run life. Win what? Win the rewards that Jesus has for us. And so in this chapter, we differentiate those two judgments between the non-Christians, what they go through, and then what the Bible says Christians will go through. Tell me about a better resurrection. This is something that most people completely miss. Paul says in, um, in Scripture that he has not yet reached that better resurrection. We go, hmm? But not yet reached the better resurrection. He says, not yet that I've attained the crown of righteousness. Oh, the Apostle Paul hasn't yet? That's right. Paul has not yet run the race all the way through the finish line, so he's not sure. He says in Second Timothy now that he's getting ready to be beheaded. Now I know I've achieved. Now I know I've gotten the crown of righteousness. So he's not talking about his salvation. He's talking about the better resurrection and a specific crown. What is that? Well, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, we mentioned earlier, the writer of Hebrews talks about people putting up with torture and refusing to relent because they're waiting for a better resurrection. Paul says that everyone's resurrection will be different, just like the stars in the sky differ in their glory. So will the glory of each person's resurrection be different based on how they live their lives. And again, I'll emphasize what we said earlier. Salvation is by grace alone. Nothing we do contributes to our salvation, but we're, we're saved for good works. And how we carry out those good works will have to do with the glory of our individual resurrection and the crowns that we receive. Tell us about ruling with Christ as a victor. So Jesus promises that if we suffer with him, then we will reign with him. Paul says in 1 Timothy that if we persevere, we will reign with him. Jesus says that in Revelation, 
those who have who have lived great lives will share his throne with him. He's talking about in the millennial age, each person will have different rulerships that they'll have. And we're given more specifics on this in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus has these different parables. The one that people remember about the five virgin or the ten virgins, about the three slaves, about the sheep and the goats. Those were all in Matthew chapter 25, and they're found in other gospels as well. But he's there specifically talks about the three slaves, and the two slaves are given gifts by their master, and they perform. And he says, "Well done, my good and faithful servants." It's become almost a cliche lately. Christians are saying that in Luke. He says, well done, go and rule cities in my name. And the last slave wastes what he was given by the master. He doesn't want to take any risks. So he goes and buries it because he doesn't want to have a daring faith. Rather, he wants to live a nice, prudent Christian life and not really take any risks. And Jesus says, you wicked, lazy slave. Why is he wicked and lazy? Because Jesus is saying there are hurting people out there. They are right now taking 10-year-old girls and telling them, if you feel bad about yourself, I just have surgery, cut your breasts off, take pills that will alter your life forever, and we're going to call that good. And Jesus is saying, I'm expecting my people to stand up against this evil and say no more. But instead, too many Christians are staying silently behind because they don't want to do anything. So which Christian are you going to be? Who are you going to be? Those who stand up and are bold will reign with Christ for eternity. Those who don't will have Sorrow, weeping and gnashing of teeth by the judgment seat of Christ. Weeping and gnashing of teeth means sorrow and anger at a wasted life. This chapter called Let's Get Married, exclamation point, <clears throat> is about what? So that's where we talk about how the church is the bride of Christ. And in that, we realize again and again, Jesus says over and over again, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast. He's talking to Christians. Well, is not everyone invited to the wedding feast? No, they're not. All these parables in Matthew 25, and several chapters in Luke, and in Matthew chapter 22, we see Christians who are in the outer darkness. Throw him into the outer darkness. Where is that? That's outside the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so in there, I talk about how we are all the body of Christ, all Christians everywhere. Some of us are warts. Some of us are hands and feet. But we're all the body of Christ. Some are contributing, some aren't. But we're not all the bride of Christ. The church is the bride, but only a remnant. So we see that Matthew, excuse me, that Adam, the first Adam, had his bride come from where? From his body, a rib, a remnant of his body. Similarly with Jesus, he's called the second Adam. Does a man marry his body? No. A remnant of that body will be the bride of Christ. We really, really want to be in the bride of Christ. And we hear in Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22, the, the bride of Christ goes down and what? Rules with Christ. There it is again. Specific place of rulership on the earth during the millennial age for those who have suffered and persevered with Christ. Now <clears throat> we get to uh, a cup of water. It's a uh, promise we're given by Jesus. He says, not even a cup of water given to one of these little ones in my name will be forgotten. That is to say that even the littlest thing that we do out of love in his name will be rewarded by him. Now we see the great and brilliant promises Christ gave, and we're at the end of the book. And I just want to tell people, I'm writing this for many reasons. But first of all, for freedom. When you understand that Christians will be judged based on what they do with their life, you get to not be judgmental anymore. You get to realize what I need to worry about is me, not anybody else. 
I don't need to go tell Jesus on her or him because they might be getting away with something. He is a God of justice and mercy. Thank God mercy triumphs justice. That's why we're saved. But justice will be meted out to Christians based on what they did. So stop worrying about your neighbor. Stop more worrying about how you can build him or her up to be a better Christian. Pray for them. But you don't need to judge them. Jesus has that under control. But also it's helpful to understand that when we give all, when we give, give up everything we have, he's also seeing that too. And it will matter for all of eternity. So don't give up. Don't tire of doing good works. Don't tire of obeying Christ because it matters forever. Uh, Ken, <clears throat> what do you want us to take from your book? I want really, uh, I want people to understand, Christians to understand, your life matters desperately. What you matters, what you do matters desperately. And also, you know, a lot of people might be listening to this, you know, and they're like, well, I, I can't be a huge NBA GM and have a radio show where I can't run promise keepers and write books. But you know, God has given us uh, specific gifts to carry out the mission he's given us, every one of us, at a different level. Some people are one thing, some are another. And I tell you, everyone listening to this, there's not a bigger thing you can do than raise godly kids. That's a big start, raise godly kids. Stand for justice. Isaiah 117 says, plead the widow's cause, care for the orphan, correct the oppressor. You know, oppressors don't like being corrected. We have taught this passivity in the church, uh, almost as if we're supposed to be non-confrontational. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. There's a big difference. Peacekeepers say, hey, can't we all just get along? Let's all get along. We just want to, nobody cause any problems here. Peacemakers say, this is unjust, and I will stand against it, and that might cause me pain, it might cause conflict, it might cause a fight, but I will stand or right and wrong in the name of Christ, in humility and grace. But I will stand for justice. And that's the message of Scripture, and I think it's being lost in today's modern church. Well, ladies and gentlemen, our guest has been Ken Harrison, <clears throat> and a great guest he is, talking about his book, A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World. Stay with us because we have more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's uh, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. <clears throat> we'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Ken Harrison, our guest. In that first segment, talking about his book, A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World, uh, I'm, I'm very pleased to welcome Fernando Arroyo uh, to the show. Uh, he's in Southern California and uh, veteran program director at Step Forward Academy. Uh, his book is out, The Shadow of Death, From My Battles in Fallujah to the Battle for My Soul. What a book it is, Fernando. Welcome to Orlando. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me on your show. Fernando, uh, let, let's start about your uh, talking about your military career. Uh, what, what happened? What's the story? How did you get into the military? Uh, just walk us yeah. through these steps in your life. Well, it starts really when I was just a little kid. I was about five or six years old, and I saw... Operation Desert Storm on TV, and as a kid, you know, I was playing soldier, G.I. Joe, and all that stuff, and 
when I saw this uh, Operation Desert Storm on TV, the thing that stood out to me were the men on the ground fighting. And I thought, man, like, this is real. They are heroes. I want to be like them one day. So fast forward 10 years later, I'm a senior at Bell Gardens High School. And on September 11, uh, I remember walking into class and the teacher had his uh, TV on, which was not normal. And everyone was glued to the TV set. And I'm like, well, what's going on? This is weird. And then when I saw what everyone was looking at, it was uh, the towers were on fire and people were committing suicide because they would rather commit suicide than burn alive in these buildings. And Mm. then I heard that America was under attack and I felt the calling over the years that this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to join and I'm supposed to fight for our country. So that month I enlisted in the army. And then walk us through those next steps. So I went to the recruiter and I said, I want to, join the, the army I want to serve mm. and he said well what do you what do you want to do I said well I want to be a paratrooper and he started laughing mm. like do you even know what that is I said yeah you know I saw uh I saw it on Discovery Channel he's like <laughs> you're telling me that you want to jump out of a perfectly good aircraft into battle and fight the enemy I said yes and he's he said I don't think you know what you're getting yourself into and he tried to talk me out of it. Really? He told, yeah, he did. He said um, that they had this, uh, that he can offer me a $20,000 enlistment bonus if I would join and be a cook in the Army. Oh. And then he said, have you ever had $20,000? And the answer was no. I grew up poor. Um, my parents came here from Mexico. I lived in a one-bedroom house, slept on the living room floor. So, yeah, $20,000 to me, I, that was a lot of money, but but that just wasn't what God called me to do. I believed in my heart that um, I wasn't called to be a cook. That's not it. I was called to be a warfighter, and so I turned it down. I turned down the $20,000 and said, no, I want to be a paratrooper. And he said, okay, but, you know, once you sign these papers, it's final. Don't come back to me and tell me that I didn't warn you. I said, okay. So I volunteered to be in the Airborne Infantry, which is, you know, the infantry we fight on the ground. But Airborne Infantry, we're trained to parachute out of airplanes and helicopters uh, behind enemy lines. So, um, yeah, I had graduated from, from high school. And then once I graduated from high school in June of 2002, then in August of 2002, I was uh, at Fort Benning, Georgia, for infantry school. Mm. And, yeah, that was a wake-up right there. You know, you see stuff on TV about boot camp and all that, but it's when you're there and you're you're the one going through it, to experience that, uh, you know, the getting yelled at, the pain, the push-ups, the running, the um, – it was summertime, so Georgia was – you know, I'm used to California. I'm, I'm used to, you know, over here if it's – 65 degrees, it's freezing. Like, ooh, this is too cold, you know? We're very comfortable in California, especially Southern California. But Georgia, it was like 90-some degrees with 100% humidity, and it was just, I I had to get used to that. Um, But, yeah, going through infantry training and being trained to 
pretty much it's to shoot, move, communicate, and kill. That's our, that's what we do. Working as a team to fight the enemy. Then after infantry school, then I went to um, airborne school, which is just down the street from at Fort Benning, Georgia. And um, yeah, jumping out of an airplane, not a not normal to do that. And I had to fight my, uh, I would say, my brain survival instincts when it finally came down to the third week of training where you have to jump five times uh, day and night. And, you know, my brain was saying, no, don't, don't, don't do this. It's dangerous. And we're 1,200 feet up in the sky and the doors are open and I'm hooked up to the C-130 aircraft with my parachute on my back, my reserve parachute in front of me in case the main parachute doesn't work. And, uh, you know, I had to throw myself out of this airplane with 64 other paratroopers. And so that was the training. And then I was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina with the 82nd Airborne Division. When did you go overseas? My first deployment was in uh, August of 2003. Um, Saddam Hussein refused to let the UN uh, inspect his weapons factories and check for chemical bombs. And so the invasion of Iraq kicked off. Once the invasion was over, uh, there became there came an uprising. Insurgency started. And Al-Qaeda in Iraq and uh, Iran, they were attacking U.S. troops. They started making what became known as uh, improvised explosive devices or roadside bombs, uh, IEDs. So my unit was called to go to a city called Fallujah. Mm -hmm. And later, Fallujah would be known as the deadliest city in the world. And, uh, yeah, uh, that was my first deployment and my first taste of combat. The subtitle of your book is From My Battles in Fallujah to the Battle for My Soul, Fernando. Uh, Can you explain what that subtitle means? So my first deployment was in Fallujah, and I I grew up a Christian. I grew up a Christian as as a kid. My mom took me to church, and I believed in Jesus Christ at a young age, and I faced challenges growing up in a in the city of Bell Gardens and, you know, in poverty. And um, there were a lot of gangs. A lot of my friends joined gangs. But it was my faith in Christ and my having both of my parents, having my father in my life, you know, they're still married to this day, um, versus most of my friends didn't have a father. And a lot of them weren't believers. They strayed away. They joined gangs. But it's my faith and my family that kept me from taking those steps of, away. So my faith has been, my faith in Christ is the cornerstone of my life. But that was challenged because facing the hardships of war, um, the question, if God is good, how could he allow this comes in? How could God allow my friends to die? How could God allow such horror? The things I saw in, on that first deployment in Fallujah were just horrific, um, just terrible. And that made me question my faith. And so from my battles in Fallujah to the battle for my soul, combat made me question my faith and made me question God. That's what happened. And 
after Fallujah, I went to Afghanistan. And then after Afghanistan, I went to Beji, Iraq. So three mm. deployments, you know. And when I got out, I, I, I didn't – well, by the, my third deployment, I'll tell you, by my third deployment, I was so angry with God. I blamed him for my friends dying, and I blamed him for all the, the bad things that I was witnessing in war. And I questioned his goodness. To the point where, even though I, I believed in him, I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want to pray. So, the battle for my soul began where, um, the enemy was attacking. And for me to walk away from Christ is what the enemy would have wanted. By the enemy, I mean Satan. And God. Let me go through that. That's why the, the book is titled The Shadow of Death from Psalm 23, right? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I walked through this valley. It was dark. It was scary. My faith, I questioned my faith. I questioned God. And the enemy would want nothing more than to just for me to lose my faith. And it came to the point where I surrendered my life to Christ. I've always believed in him. And I did, you know, believe that he was my Lord and Savior. I questioned him. I questioned his goodness. But then I reached the point when I realized he was always there with me. And he's not evil. You know, we live in a fallen world. Bad things are going to happen. But he loves us, and he gave his son for us. So it was his, his grace that saved me and has kept me alive. And um, so from my battles in Fallujah to the battle for my soul, that battle for my soul still continues. Every day as a believer is a, is a battle. I have to keep my faith in, in Jesus and trust in Him. And I know I'm going to face challenges in life, but I know that God is with me. And ultimately, whatever happens in this life, you know, as Paul says, it, it does not compare. All the, the bad things in this life do not compare to the glory we have in heaven. So. Uh, Fernando, what role do uh, chaplains play uh, in in the service, in the Army, in uh, all the branches? What uh, where, where do they fit into this story? So in this story, uh, there were chaplains. Uh, my first chaplain was Chaplain Knight, a former uh, Delta Force operator who felt God's calling on his life. Uh, and the second one was uh, Chaplain Kramer. Um, I was closer to Chaplain Kramer, but I their role. So the role of a chaplain is they are the, the the pastoral, they are the pastor, the counselor for the Christians in the battalion. You know, there's one chaplain per battalion, and they do have Sunday services. They lead Sunday services and preach sermons. I I didn't uh, I didn't go to that. I didn't. I I didn't go to Sunday services. I didn't uh, seek the chaplain for prayer or for counsel. Um, it was more of a hi and bye and uh, good to see you. You know, just chaplains are pretty nice guys. But I I didn't take advantage of that. They were there, and I didn't seek them. Do you regret that? Say that again? Do you regret that? I I do. I do because instead of leaning leaning into into God, I started relying on myself. I thought, well, you know, I'm trained 
I've been through all this training and, and I'm a, I'm so tough. You know, I, I, I jump out of planes and, you know, I, I could handle this. I could handle this on my own. So what I did was I started leaning on my own strength instead of relying on Christ. When I first joined, I, I prayed the whole time. Lord, help me through this training. Oh, Lord, I need you. Oh, Lord, strengthen me. Finding my strength in God. And then once I made it through the training, I kind of pushed God aside and said, oh, cool, I'm good. I, I passed the training. I, I'm in this unit. I got this. And it was about my own physical abilities, and it was about my own strength and proving myself to my teammates. Big mistake. Mm. Big mistake. I regret that because it's God who gives us strength. And um, pushing God aside like that, you know, hey, thank you for getting me to where I asked you to. Um, I'll call you if I need you. You know, that's kind of what I did. And going without him, um, it didn't matter if I could run or whatever my physical abilities were. What about my salvation? What about my, my spiritual health? What about, you know, my relationship with Christ? It's, it's, uh, it's a, a, a relationship where, you know, I, I am, I'm a son of God. I am joined into the sonship through Christ. We're, we're heirs of, of this kingdom. You don't just walk away from that. Like, no. Um, I pushed the most important relationship I had and have now aside, and that was a, a decision that I do regret. My guest is uh, Fernando Arroyo. Uh, the book is called The Shadow of Death, From My Battles in Fallujah to the Battle for My Soul. Uh, we have another segment with Fernando. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And you're listening, of course, to AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Uh, By the way, Fernando, uh, what is the Veterans Program Director at Step Forward Academy that you're involved with? So, Step Forward Academy is a faith-based nonprofit organization, and what we do at Step Forward Academy is help veterans find a career and the living wage um, through mentorship. So we have a curriculum. We help veterans figure out their personality strengths and determine what careers best suit them. And then we help them with their resumes, with budgeting, with different aspects needed in order to succeed and to move forward uh, to a living wage and a career. But the key thing is mentorship. Um, we have veterans who are volunteers, and they spend time every week with these veterans. So it's a veteran counseling a veteran, a veteran who has a career, a veteran who has succeeded in the civilian world, now turning around and giving a helping hand to veterans and military personnel transitioning out of the military to help guide them into civilian life and into success. So what I do is I partner with veterans organizations and ask them, do you have veterans that could benefit from this program? And that's how we find the veterans to help. 
How do you describe Iraq and Afghanistan to those of us who have never been there and probably never will? Iraq and Afghanistan. <clears throat> okay, let's see. Iraq, um, very hot in the summer. Uh, it's more of a desert. There are, and there's more cities. It's more developed than Afghanistan. Honestly, when, um, when I would go to visit my family in Mexico, in Baja, California, it reminds me of Iraq. Um, there's desert, but there's small towns and cities. Um, that, that's what Iraq is like. Um, as far as the uh, smells, um, I just remember Iraq smelling like cow dung. Um, just saying, that's the way it was. And uh, the, I remember the culture shock where, you know, it's a Muslim the majority of people there are Muslim, and the women are covered up. You know, the married, the older married women are dressed in black. They wear black gloves, long black dresses, and hijabs, which are the black coverings on their head. And um, <clears throat> the men wear what we call man dresses. It's their, their clothing and sandals and. Um, it was just, uh, yeah, it, it's a, a different experience. I remember walking through, when we go on patrols, like through a market street, you know, shopping area, and they're butchering sheep in the streets and throwing their intestines on the street, and then mm. there's a lot of uh, packs of stray dogs, and they're just eating these intestines on the streets. And, mm. uh, yeah, it's just... Uh, it was a culture shock to go from being in the United States and then a few hours later I'm in this country and I'm walking through the streets and the sights, smells, and sounds were all different. The the people speak Arabic and uh, yeah, it's just it's a, it's a different world. So that's Iraq, um, Afghanistan. There's different languages from Pashtun, Farsi, Arabic. There's different tribes, but the difference is uh, Afghanistan is way less developed than Iraq. Even though Iraq is a third world country, Afghanistan, I don't know if there's such a thing as a fourth or fifth world. Like they are, there's people that live in caves. There's, they do have towns, small towns, um, but it's just, uh, to see, I was in a sniper team, and we would watch roads waiting because people were putting, insurgents were putting bombs on the side of the road, and we were there to prevent that. And I watched the people in the village, you know, just doing their everyday thing, and um, it's just a culture shock. The, the women were covered up. Their faces are covered up. Um, I remember seeing a woman with a huge basket of potatoes on her head. And she's walking behind her husband, who's not carrying anything, and just walking next to his donkey. Uh, women are not women are degraded in Afghanistan. They're they're just they're not. Uh, and you want to talk about people talk about women's rights and fighting for women's rights. Well, if you're a women's rights activist, go to Afghanistan and, and fight that because. That, that's where the battle is. Mm. Um, yeah.
it was uh it was cold the mountains it's the way it was described to us before we deployed was it's the rocky mountains on steroids mm. and when we arrived in afghanistan that's exactly what it was everywhere is up and with full combat gear i mean it's uh and the elevation hard to breathe it's it's heavy it's uh, it's very difficult terrain versus Iraq was flat, flat desert, Afghanistan, mountains. So that's how I would describe both. Fernando, what was your reaction um, when the United States pulled out of Afghanistan um, totally the, uh, months back? What was your reaction? I think um, that we did need to pull out. I do not agree with the way it was done. Um so abruptly, this was done. It was done without a plan, in my opinion. I don't know what the plan was because it didn't seem like there was one. Just get everyone out. People are hanging on to airplanes at Bagram Air Base, which I was there um, years earlier. I've been there. And to think that I was there when we were there, when America was there, and... and um, And there was order, and now we're pulling out, and everybody is afraid and fear for their lives because the Taliban is coming back. And they're hanging onto airplanes as they take off, and they're even falling from the sky off of these airplanes, hanging onto the tires. And um, it was a poor, it was poorly done the way the way we left. And then after leaving, leaving billions of dollars of military equipment, the Taliban came in with AK-47s and some machine guns, and now they have Black Hawk helicopters, Humvees, fighter jets. I mean, we just resupplied. The Taliban is stronger now than they were when we first invaded Afghanistan. Uh, It's just, it's still sad and disappointing. And as a veteran, uh, the question, did I waste my time and my life fighting in Afghanistan? Uh, what about my, you know, all our, our, our brothers and sisters who laid down their life fighting in Afghanistan? Was it for nothing? Uh, and I want to say to all the veterans listening, the answer is no, it wasn't for nothing. Because ultimately, yes, we do obey the orders of the president. We did fight for the United States for, what, 20 years or more. We kept the enemy away from our country. We fought them in their land away from here saving lives and families here in America. And we fought for each other. When I was overseas, it wasn't about me. It was about my brothers to my left and my right. And fighting for them was worth it. So fighting in Afghanistan, we did what we were called to do. And we should you know, hold our heads up high for what we did. It's the people above us, the people in, in control, who make the poor decisions. And it wasn't. It's not our fault. We did nothing wrong. It's it's the the people in D.C. making these poor decisions. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm proud to tell you that uh, we have been talking with Fernando Arroyo about his book. Make sure you get it: "The Shadow of Death: From My Battles in Fallujah to the Battle for My Soul." Go up to Amazon and. Uh, and make sure you get a copy. And while you're at it, my latest book is out. It's called Every Day is Game Day. It's a 365-day sports devotional. Uh, 
every day has a sports anecdote or story, and then it leads into the devotional part. So uh, when you get uh, The Shadow of Death, get a copy of Every Day is Game Day. I did it with my good friend uh, Mark Atterbury. Well, folks, we have a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, You're plugged into AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Well, folks, we've had a good hour here with Ken Harrison, first of all, uh, and then uh, Fernando Arroyo. Enjoyed talking to both of them. Uh, Folks, let me remind you again, we're uh, working trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. Uh, Orlando's become a huge city and ready to be moved to become a Major League Baseball city. So go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com. Just check in. Let us hear from you. Uh, and if they can pull this off, you know, you want to be have the best options for tickets and season tickets. So now's the time to move. Orlandodreamers.com. We're so glad you joined us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Hope you have a wonderful week ahead. We'll be back with you next weekend right here on AM 990 FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Stay tuned to those uh, call letters. Uh, You'll be better off for it. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.